0: Hello and welcome to Employment Practices Solutions podcast from diversity to inclusion, breaking down barriers on the path to uncommon ground. I'm your host Lisa Dishman. Diversity has been a hot topic for quite some time. The notion of inclusion has surfaced more recently and often in the same breath as diversity. At EPS we've been in the midst of these conversations for almost 25 years with our training courses and perhaps more discouragingly through our investigations of workplace complaints. Most of our listeners already know about the benefits of a diverse and inclusive organization. We know, for example, that companies in the top quartile for gender, racial, and ethnic diversity are more likely to have financial returns above their industry national medium. We're also beginning to understand that the benefits of diversity are only truly realized when it's partnered with inclusion, an organizational culture where all individuals are respected and appreciated as valuable members of their communities. We want to dive into some of the practical actions that employers and employees can take to make progress on this journey. Today, I'm joined by Stephanie Davis who has been on the front lines addressing these issues within organizations for more than 20 years, most recently leading EPS efforts in delivering our public workshops on moving from diversity to inclusion. Stephanie wrote a white paper on the topic, and she also leads EPS as its president as well. Also joining me today is my colleague, Jessica Caspi, who is a consultant with EPS in our Philadelphia office Jessica partnered with Stephanie to deliver our diversity and inclusion workshops, and she, like all EPS consultants, is a licensed attorney. Rochelle Weathersby from our Dallas-Fort Worth office is also joining me today. Rochelle has delivered training and investigations for EPS for more than 20 years and recently wrote on inclusion from the standpoint of bro culture and its impact on organizations. And lastly, Denise Kaye, our senior consultant from Denver. Denise hosted our latest diversity and inclusion workshop. She also joins the panel today. I am so happy to have you all with me. Welcome. Stephanie, Jessica, and Denise, you have all delivered highly interactive, very deep dive workshops on the subject of diversity and inclusion. We've also worked through the course ourselves at an EPS offsite meeting, so you all have been deeply involved in these conversations about inclusion with audiences of HR, legal, and other professionals who are challenged by these concepts. After those really immersive experience, I'm curious about each of your biggest takeaway based on what you've heard in those workshops. Stephanie, I'm gonna turn to you first. What has been your biggest takeaway? There was so much that came out of the workshop that was um, interesting and, and thought-provoking for me. So it's hard to narrow down that the, the, that question, but for me, I found it really eye-opening to realize or maybe be reminded about the fact that not everybody is on board with the underlying premise of of these workshops which is that diversity has inherent value so as you mentioned you know we decided to facilitate these conversations to bridge the gap between diversity and inclusion something it became very clear to us is really important um, to have a productive work climate and i was reminded that we really need to remember to talk about why diversity matters as part of that conversation and not forget about it. Jessica, similar question to you. What made the biggest impression on you after working through these conversations?
1: I think generally it was exciting to see how interested people were in discussing these issues. And as a group, we collectively tried to figure out best practices and how to implement ideas to make organizations more inclusive and welcoming to all. I think with that said, one of the biggest takeaways for me was that while the participants said many of their leadership say that they're on board with diversity and inclusion efforts, that they're still sort of struggling to get the leadership to really dig in to these issues and dedicate the necessary time and resources to really creating a more inclusive workplace or organization.
0: Denise, you have the most recent, most fresh experience having delivered the workshop in Denver. Just- uh, in the last month, do you have anything to add from their takeaways? Thanks, Lisa. What I would add is that I was taken aback by how how big the spectrum is as far as where organizations stand with with grappling with these issues of diversity and inclusion. And we've seen many feel like they have gotten to a point where they are diverse, but they're working on the inclusivity piece component to it, whereas others are still trying to figure out how to get people to the table in the diversity side. Um, I read a quote recently from Johnny Taylor, the CEO of Sherm, who said that diversity is, is a sprint and that inclusivity is more like a marathon. And I think we saw that in our sessions while with how our various employers that were represented there were on that spectrum, how far, how much progress they had made and where they feel like they may be falling short that's a great analogy stephanie you wrote the white paper on this subject um late last year and you mentioned training which is always near and dear to our hearts at eps but even before employers contemplate making an investment in time and money that that training requires you suggested a number of ways that organizations can begin to make significant steps toward inclusion one of which is simply talking about the concept um, inclusion can be a little touchy-feely, it can be a little abstract for most of us. So tell us more concretely about what those depths entail. Well, it it is touchy-feely, and that does make a lot of us uncomfortable. But um, guess what? You know, we need to get comfortable uh, being uncomfortable. And I that really starts at the top. So leadership has to be okay themselves talking about, hard issues and that means like not just once a year checking a box at compliance training by mentioning diversity and inclusion but by having conversations continually um whether it's formal or informal so leadership should be talking about this stuff in formal addresses in uh, your mission statement in your policies in certainly in training sessions in team building sessions and informal conversations too and I think it's important that all of us be, you know, really clear and uh, transparent that these are, these are hard conversations to have. They're tough issues for a lot of, a lot of us to get our heads around and, and talk about. So while not allowing people to behave inappropriately, of course, still providing some room for um, pushback, maybe confusion, um, allowing people, having some patience with people who might not be getting there as quickly as we'd like them to. Denise, did you have something to add? Yes, I just wanted to add that I have been conducting workplace trainings for the past three weeks in a variety of different industries at the topmost levels. And it's been really interesting. One of the things that we've focused on and that we've gotten the most positive feedback on is our approach about elimination of bias. And it's become such an important cultural aspect of getting to this concept of inclusivity. And when we, all, when we sit back and recognize our own inherent biases and we actually take a hard look, and and I don't necessarily think that is kind of soft and squishy, I think it's important. And it's important for everyone, at the, every level of the organization to look at their own potential biases that they're bringing into the work environment, then we start to see a difference. And that has been, a real hard takeaway a real tangible takeaway from my my time training recently, and I would even go so far as to say that um, certain um, state bars are recognizing this, for example, in the state of California, the bar has said that included in the minimum CLE requirements for attorneys is an hour of training in the area called recognition and elimination of bias in the profession and society so this is real and it's tangible and we need to be on on, you on alert if you're an employer in this area who wants to make a difference in diversity and inclusion well let's examine that one step further jessica you develop training content for eps and you've delivered diversity and inclusion training like denise uh rochelle and stephanie to a really wide variety of audiences What do you think that employers should be particularly mindful of when they are thinking of embarking on diversity and inclusion training?
1: Well, as Denise said, I think including a component on rooting out your own potential biases, including your unconscious ones, is a critical part of any training right now. Um, And going back to what Stephanie said, these are really tough conversations to have. So I think first and foremost, you need to set the training up so it's a really comfortable for people to have these discussions and say from the outset these are hard conversations We want you to be able to voice your opinions we want to hear your different opinions even if we don't all necessarily agree because it's important to let everybody air whatever concerns they may have along those lines I think at least initially the training should probably be separate managers should have separate training for example than employees so people feel as comfortable as possible participating I think it's also really important to have a component on bystander intervention and practical guidance on what to do if people observe inappropriate behavior in the workplace. I think the goal is to have everyone develop this sort of collective responsibility for making their workplace more inclusive and everyone to feel more respected.
0: Those are really worthy goals. And, Stephanie, I'm going to turn back to you. Part of inclusion is including people in the process. So as a practical matter, how does an employer begin to get employees and managers of all levels engaged and involved in efforts around inclusion? What are some very practical steps they can take? For starters, I feel uh, including people in the process involves what Jessica just spoke about, which is, you know, quality, proactive education at all levels. That's not just checking a box, but it's ongoing. But it's also about soliciting feedback in other ways. So that people have different options depending upon how they're most comfortable sharing. So, other ways we can include people in the process would be maybe town hall conversations, perhaps focus groups, maybe anonymous feedback surveys, um, and and again, continuing informal conversations where you know leaders are accessible and involved uh, in talking about this stuff on a regular basis. And I think. Another important side note is that we also, as an organization, need to be prepared to act on the information that we get, so don't ask questions if you don't want to act on um, the answers. Let's dig into one specific area um, that's prohibitive of inclusion. Rochelle, you wrote um, a white paper for ETS recently about bro culture and its impact specifically on organizations. We may think we all know what you mean by bro culture, but it has an increasingly stark oppositional force to inclusive cultures, especially in the wake of Me Too and Time's Up. So help us understand what do you mean by bro culture and and its impact on inclusion and diversity.
2: Well, thanks, Lisa. Uh, talking about bro culture, bro culture is really something that is defined in various ways. But but fundamentally, it's an accepted culture of bias manifested in behaviors and decisions that support the exclusion of women in an organization, both socially and professionally. Um, sometimes you'll see this in organizations in a very overt and, and egregious way, um, some of the behaviors that led to the, the movements that we're seeing now in the hashtag Me Too and hashtag Time's Up. You'll also see it take place in more subtle forms, and you know this is basically um, you see this in cultures where women, and oftentimes also um, some of the same mindset also extends to others who are uh, diverse in some way or another, um, being treated poorly or um, being subjected to unwanted behaviors and comments, um, and also possibly career-limiting type decisions. It it tends to be more prevalent in work groups that have been predominantly male for a long time. It also tends to be more prevalent in work groups that that, uh, lack diversity at the leadership level. And it also tends to be more prevalent in work groups where managers either look the other way and fail to address known issues. Um, Oftentimes, even some of those uh, less, less overt issues. It's often a result of behaviors and actions, you know, that are much more subtle than in some of the things um, that you might think of, such as, you know, I think in its most egregious form it, it involves um, situations where you have, you know, sexual comments are the norm, or females are being subjected to unwanted sexual advances, or are paid less than than some really situated males. But like I said, in, in its everyday form, I think you see bro culture. Exhibit itself in much more subtle ways on a routine basis, so a
0: lot of what you're referring to um the kinds of behavior that can really impact uh, inclusion and a more fundamental culture of just basic respect and I know all of you as trainers and as investigators hear a lot of participants talk about these kind of behaviors it falls short of outright outright discrimination and bullying but still has an enormous impact on organizations so Rochelle just to tag on can you be specific um I think in your paper you had a couple of specific examples of bro culture and exactly how it has an impact on organizations and uh you guys may want to chime in too on other examples not specifically related to bro culture that have have an impact on organizations Rochelle
2: yeah, well, Lisa, you know, I often hear stories about these behaviors in investigations or I'll hear these types of stories from participants in training classes either during during the class or afterwards, and it's important I think for organizations to consider that the, that the day-to-day behaviors that may not seem to be significant are often the types of things that run counter to inclusivity. And some examples that come to mind that I hear, um, you know, it's oftentimes, you know, you may have a leader, for example, uh, leaders in organizations who overlook sexual comments or sexual innuendo comments in a situation where no one appears offended, everyone's laughing about those types of issues, um, or maybe there's no females present in the room. Um, you may also hear other examples such as uh, frequent negative uh, stereotypes exhibited towards either males or females who don't meet gender stereotypes or who are um, acting in a way that's inconsistent with a gender stereotype. For an example, that might be you may hear negative comments made about a male who's taking time off for paternity leave or who's taking time off to tend to childcare issues. You may hear or see negative body language exhibited towards a female, for example, who is known as assertive in an organization, although similar behaviors are tolerated from males in the organization. It could also be in some organizations perhaps the frequent use of of rough language, and it doesn't even have to be language that's sexual in nature. For example, some clients I work for where the workforce is predominantly male, you may hear language such as, you know, wow, that client just ripped me a new one, or something like that that, that may make uh, some of people in the organization uncomfortable. I did an investigation um, one time where manager was using frequent references to combat uh, military references that were making the female, other females in the organization feel excluded because those references did not resonate with them. Another frequent issue I hear also after training sessions, I've heard this several times recently, is where females have expressed that during meetings that they have felt that they have been talked over by other males, or that their ideas were dismissed and then embraced when a male may have phrased the same sort of idea, but just a little bit of a different message. So these are the types of things, and some of these things may appear trivial, but I think that repeatedly they have a cumulative effect of making people feel excluded in the workplace. Stephanie, something to add? Yeah, I
1: had it.
0: I do. I had, I think this falls in in the bucket of bro culture. I had, um, I was at a recent conference where first generation college graduates were talking about their experiences succeeding in the workplace and they had a panel of people talking about this and a female who fell in, into this, this category was on, on the panel talking about her job in a financial services company and she was Uh, The only female on her team um, in an uh, organization where everybody liked to play golf. And so, um, you know, she had no idea how to play golf. She had no particular interest in golf. Um, And she certainly didn't have any background that had uh, no exposure to it in her background or the means. To have had exposure to it, and so what she did was she said well i I felt like I had to you know buy myself golf lessons, so I did that, and I became a golf player, and now I'm playing golf regularly with my colleagues and clients and so many in the room applauded her for her initiative, and of course, you know, I too think you know she seems like a great team player, and I admire her tenacity and um her efforts, but at the same time, I was thinking. Wait a minute! This is exactly what we don't want. This is exactly not inclusive. You know, if if getting ahead in an organization means you have to play golf, you know, we need to see that as a problem. And story really made me feel like we have our work cut out for us uh, in this area, Denise. But well, there are a lot of nodding heads to Stephanie's point. I would just add that what I'm hearing um, in these workplaces goes to generational issues as well. And so it it just goes to Stephanie's point. So when we have a senior leadership team that was predominantly male and now we're seeing different generations in the workforce, I know we just published a great article on generational issues, I think it's important to notice the changes uh, that have come about over the decades that we've all been in the work environment. And so those stereotypes are still pervasive. So golfing is a great example of that. Um, I'll counter your story, Stephanie, to say though that they put a young, 22-year-old female on a team, thinking that she was actually going to be um, a fault for the team, and nobody knew that she was a, a uh, she was a D1 scholar golfer in college, and she won the whole tournament. So <laughs> you never know. But she wanted to golf. But the point is that we have to be considerate of generational issues in our workplaces as well, in the stereotypes that that those may foster and not allowing people to be feeling as welcome or as individualized as they would like to be because of just kind of historically how the organization is, has has worked. And so being sensitive to that is really going to help us break through some of these barriers as well. Thanks for that. Uh, you know, one of the things, Stephanie, I think you mentioned and each of you that it touched on is giving people the space to talk about their culture, their history, their background, their traditions, to actually sort of have that be a more natural part of the workplace experience. And I'm curious, how do employers make the space for that as a practical matter? Anybody can chime in. Steph, I'll, I'll, I'll start with you. Do you have any suggestions for those types of differences and how we share those in the workplace? What, kind of, what, what can employers do? To help foster that well, I mean for me it's it's every it's all about food. <laughs> I mean we all have to eat eating is a common denominator, so it's also you know representative of our uh backgrounds and cultures and 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 maybe even values. so what better way to connect than to provide opportunities to eat together in my mind? Food always works. So inclusion is a process. It's not a one-and-done effort. Um, Accountability for leaders to demonstrate a commitment to inclusivity is important. So what does that accountability look like, especially for leadership? We've talked in a number of things uh, where organizations are trying to make efforts at any particular initiative that leadership is really important. Suggestions for leadership. And their ability to to demonstrate a commitment to diversity and inclusion. Stephanie, I think accountability would mean incorporating these values, uh, d- diversity and inclusion, into actual performance goals for leadership. Meaning that there would be you know rewards and consequences dependent upon um, a leader's performance in this area. And I think you know we often resist um, ideas like this because we think. You know, it's hard to quantify, but I I think we need to move away from only valuing qualities we can assess based on metrics and including um, a more holistic assessment of a leader. Rochelle, anything to add? Well, I think
2: also creating a culture where leaders hold themselves or hold each other accountable um, where we encourage during training sessions that it is okay to pull another leader aside and give them some guidance if you see a better way to handle a situation or if they are possibly crossing over a line that maybe they don't even realize they're crossing over, about to cross over, to have that kind of open dialogue with each other and know that it's okay to provide that sort of constructive feedback to each other and help each other along the way, I think, is important. Denise?
0: And I just add that we should again, talking about leaders specifically, they should be empowered to participate. So if they're hosting events or they're holding diversity meetings or um, committees or so forth, that the leaders actually show up and that they show how important it is to the whole organization as a whole and they don't assume that somebody else will take care of it um, or manage it or lead the meeting or what have you. So really being present and showing the respect uh, for the topics of diversity and inclusion as a member
2: of the leadership team.
0: Oftentimes, um, any sort of effort boils down to communication. Any suggestions on areas to focus on with communicating a focus on diversity and inclusion issues within organizations? Anybody want to chime in on the communications aspect of it? Rochelle?
2: Well, you know, I think just a couple of things. I think one of the best things I've ever heard in terms of communication is to say what you mean, mean what you say, and don't be mean about it. And so I think it's important for for leaders to model honest yet professional communication. And, And I think at the crux of this, this means that it's important to communicate frequently. Um, On these issues like I said it can't be a one-and-done and and we need to have ongoing communication on these things. Um, I also think it's how we communicate on a daily basis towards people that's really important and I think that when when we do that it's important to think about how our communications will be perceived by others and to learn how to self-filter both in terms of, of what we say and also how we go about saying it in terms of creating a respectful environment. Stephanie, anything to add?
0: I would just add that, um, you know, what I, I agree that what we say matters and language matters and my pet peeve, which everyone probably is very familiar with, is when gender-neutral language is not used, I just find it very off-putting um, when terms like you know, chairman or mankind are used, when it's very easy uh, and certainly more inclusive to use gender-neutral al- alternatives. Jessica, you have something to add.
1: I was going to echo what Stephanie had said and just emphasize the importance of using gender neutral language. This is an area where you may get the most eye rolls in organizations, but it is a critical component of creating and fostering a more inclusive work environment.
0: Denise? And just to add on to that, I would say it's not just in our speech and our language, but also perhaps in our policies, our job descriptions and other written communications that the organization has out there to be very sensitive to the language that we're choosing to use when it comes to references uh, based on gender in those documents as well. Stephanie, you mentioned dedicated spaces in your article as an active nod to inclusion. Tell us more about what that might mean for an employer. So I think that uh, employers need to really consider the physical work space and how it works and may not work for everybody in the community. So consider, for example, Um, where would somebody go if they wanted to have a private conversation what if they wanted to worship during the day or have a quiet space to meditate in where would a breastfeeding mother go to express her breast milk what about somebody who just doesn't function well around lots of other people and needs some 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 quiet space somebody wants to have a private one-on-one meeting you know we need to really consider whether or not Um, We have opportunities for people to have some privacy, and not everyone can handle being around others all the time. So we need options where we can get away. Those are all good suggestions. We've covered a lot of ground. Thank you, Stephanie, Jessica, Denise, and Rochelle for fielding these questions. It's such important information. Thank you also to our listeners for joining us. We'll continue to deliver our diversity and inclusion workshops around the nation in the new year. You can find out more about those workshops and EPS services more generally at our website, epspros.com, that's E-P-S-P-R-O-S dot You can read Stephanie and Rochelle's articles on the topic there as well. You can listen to this podcast and share it with others in both SoundCloud and in iTunes, and you can find us everywhere else on social media too. We'd love to hear your feedback, your questions, and better understand the employment practices challenges you face in your organization. We hope you'll join us on upcoming podcasts. Thanks again.